Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. If you met a science denier in person, would you know what to say? Is it possible to change the minds of flat earthers, climate change skeptics, Holocaust deniers, lunar landing refuseniks, and people who think COVID-19 is a Chinese bioweapon? And is it even important to try to change their minds? Philosopher of science Lee McIntyre addresses the subject in his latest book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. It's published by the MIT Press and brings Mr. McIntyre, a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School, to our show now. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. The title of your previous book was Post-Truth. Did reading, did writing that lead you to this topic? <laughs> uh, it, it's funny. No, it, it didn't, though. The, in some ways, the, the topics do end up being related. Uh, I'm a philosopher of science, and for many years I've been interested in what's special about science uh, so that we can defend it and, and grow it elsewhere. And what I talked about in Post-Truth was the fact that about 50 or 60 years of unchecked science denial led to post-truth. Mm. Um, the folks who were uh, you know, in political power, I think, looked at uh, what was happening with science denial and said, well, you know, wow, if you can make all of these false claims about climate change and vaccines, I guess we can make those about anything. And they did, uh, you know, and as as we saw during the uh, Trump administration, there was a lot of uh, assault on everyday truth that you know, we could verify for ourselves. And um, so the topics are really related. But is this anything new? Doesn't science denialism have a long history dating back at least as far as Galileo? And I remember in the 1950s, tobacco companies denied that smoking caused lung cancer. Well, you put your finger right on it there. Uh, science denial, of course, has been around as, as long as science. What makes it modern science denial, though, uh, really started in the 1950s with what you're describing, which is when there was a uh, study that was due to come out to show that, you know, an all but definitive link between smoking and lung cancer. And the tobacco executives got together um, in the uh, Plaza Hotel in New York City with a public relations specialist who advised them to fight the science, which they did through public relations. Uh, they they didn't you know, they did all the things that um, misinformation campaigns do to try to raise doubt uh, in folks mind. And uh, that story is well told in Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway's book, Merchants of Doubt. And what they call that is the tobacco strategy. And it was followed for the next um, 40 or 50 years by uh, anti-vaxxers, by climate deniers on acid rain, you know, anything that people wanted to deny, they followed the tobacco strategy. So you write it, that, it's not new, but it's worse now. Is well, what you you write say. that irrational beliefs have reached epidemic proportions. How responsible for that is Donald Trump? Um, you know, Trump, I think that Trump capitalized on some trends that were already in the works. Um, I don't think that Trump would have really been possible uh, to come on the American landscape as he did uh, without you know some other things being uh, some other things having happened first. One of them was the decline of traditional media and the rise of social media, so that all of these cognitive biases that you know, people are born with, uh, no matter what their politics, uh, can be exploited uh, through social media. Uh, the, you know, the, the people who create fake news all of a sudden had a bonanza. You, you don't have to go, you know, find the National Enquirer over at your local grocery store anymore. It's online. Worse than that, it's in your news feed on Facebook. Worse than that, you can't always tell what you're reading. Um, you, you know, if you if you see something, the way that we get our news online now, um, you can't tell what's a well-vetted source and what's not, and that confuses people and makes it worse. And here's the point that brings it back to post-truth. Um, that really serves the interest of people who want to control the population. If they can control the information flow, if they can lie at will, um, it really makes their job a lot easier. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. It's made science denial worse. It's made our culture worse. But since science deniers are still in the minority, does it really matter what they think? Well, they have a pretty loud voice. Hmm. 
I mean, they're how miserable are they making us all now with um, uh, COVID, uh, refusing to get vaccines? Uh, I mean, there are there are some types of science denial that are not as dangerous as others, but they all contribute to, I guess, what I think of as a denialist culture. But when you look at, I mean, how many science deniers do there need to be in Congress Hmm. to block climate change legislation and makes the rest of us suffer? How many people need to uh, broadcast a false message about mask wearing or the COVID vaccines uh, on Fox News to get millions of people to listen and not take their vaccines. It's just, uh, there was a um, thing on, uh, I think it was either PBS or NPR, I can't remember, but they they reported the other day that 65% of the anti-vax disinformation on Twitter was due to 12 people. Hmm. So there may not be very many of them creating that disinformation, but they have a huge megaphone and they've got a lot of people who hear that message. And whether you want to call them deniers or not, they suffer for the, uh, you know, for for having doubts and sometimes pay with their lives, as we've seen. Uh, do science deniers prefer ideology to facts? Is there a psychological component to this? I, I you know, I, I think you're right that there is a psychological component. I, I'm not sure it's quite so linear as just to say that you know they have an ideology and it's challenged, and so they prefer the other. Thing. I mean, that happens sometimes like with climate change. You know, if you if you work for a fossil fuel company and you know where your paycheck comes from, you know, you, you might not be so happy with the um, efforts to uh, to fight climate change. But it, it's for most people, it's a little more subtle than that, because but, what I've go ahead. They cite cherry picked evidence, rely on fake experts, believe conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and insist that science must be perfect. Mm hmm. That, That's that, right. That seems to me to be psychological. It, it, it is. Um, I think that what science denial is really about is identity. People feel alienated and polarized and pushed around, and they find a community of people who agree with them. Hmm. And that's an extremely powerful thing. And I've almost come to the conclusion that in some ways the content of the belief doesn't matter as much as the fact that there's a community of people that believe it along with them. And so when you say, is it ideological? I, I'm not necessarily because f- flat earth, what do they really get out of that? Well, you know, how, how could that be anyone's ideology? I just, I don't get it. But what they do get is a powerful sense of community because the flat earthers you know, really stick up for one another, go to conventions, they greet one another as friends. And you write that you decided that you can't argue about these things unless you know the way that the deniers think. So after studying science denial from your desk for 20 years, you decided to go undercover and infiltrated the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver, Colorado in 2018. Yeah, I mean, infiltrate is a strong word. I put on a flannel shirt and I put a lanyard around my neck and I kept my mouth shut uh-huh. <laughs> for the first day. And it was important and, to keep your mouth shut and not snicker or anything like that? It, it was important to keep my mouth shut because I was there to learn. Um, you, you know, you, you mentioned before the things that science deniers have in common. And I thought, you know, this is the most elemental form of science denial I can imagine. So let me hear how they talk to one another before I try to enter in. And, you know, if you think that you're going to go in there and just kick the door in and, you know, present some facts from Newton and they're going to say what a fool I was, you're, you're wrong. That's not how it's done. Um, so I, I had to listen first. I had to be patient. And then when I spoke really on the second day, uh, some of them were kind of surprised that I wasn't a flat earther because they'd see me around at the seminars and such. But then I started to, to engage with them and talk to them about not the facts, not the evidence, but how they were reasoning about the evidence. And that was very different. They had really never uh, done that before. They had all sorts of uh, seminars about the quote unquote evidence for the flat earth. What they'd never really done is thought about uh, what it means to reason on the basis of evidence. And so, you know, as a philosopher of science, it was uh, it, it was thrilling to be there. 
Don't they believe that the Earth is a disk surrounded by a wall of ice that keeps the sea from flowing off Earth, the the Antarctica, and that Mm -hmm. we live under a transparent dome and that all space travel is faked and the truth is suppressed by a worldwide conspiracy of experts? What do those experts have to gain by saying that the Earth isn't flat? You just described it perfectly. And I asked that same question. What what does any why would anyone do this? And here's where you'll get a little bit different answer from different folks. But the problem with conspiracy theories is really this. If there's any evidence for a conspiracy theory, it's the slightest evidence. They'll cherry pick it off and say, see, but if there's no evidence They'll say that just shows you how good the conspirators are, mm. which which makes it really impossible because it's not really about evidence at all. Then, and so I would ask them questions like, you know, you you say, because at first I thought, well, maybe this is just faith. Maybe there's nothing you can say to them, and they all objected. No, no, this is about evidence. So I said, in that case, what evidence could prove you wrong? Because a scientist could answer that question, but they really had trouble with that with that question. And I came away with the feeling that for the most part, um, as I said, it wasn't about the content of the belief so much as it was the psychological benefit that they got from being in a community of like minded people who told them that they were smart and that they belonged and that they didn't have to feel alienated anymore. They, and, that they belong uh, to an elite that has discovered a truth denied to, to the rest yeah. of us in the gullible mainstream? Imagine if you were in a crowd of 650 people and you thought that you had the answer to the biggest conspiracy theory in the world. And your job was to go out and wake people up one by one to get them to see that this was true. Uh, to a person, their favorite movie was The Matrix. And they talked unironically about taking the red pill and seeing things for how they really were and divided the rest of the world up into people who were either the conspirators, the people, the heads of government, the airline pilots, the teachers, the professors who knew that the earth was flat, but wouldn't say. And then the sheep, the sheep that they had persuaded. And it was... um, it was very strange to be in a group of 650 people who disagreed with me, um, but they got a powerful hit, I think, from being you know, in a group where they agreed with one another. In their regular lives, they are um, kicked out of their church, alienated from their family. Uh, it's got to be difficult. Nobody would do that for fun. Um, but in that ballroom, they were amongst family and friends. I wonder how they explain things like the moon and the the, uh, the the faces of the moon, for example. If the moon is cutting across this across this flat disk that's floating in space, how does it get back around to the other side? Does it make a quick dash underneath? They've got an answer for that. I'm not sure I could describe it to you in any way that would make sense. But one of the uh, cutting edge, if that's not the wrong word, way to describe it is that they have a lot of what they call scientific seminars that are devoted to precisely those sorts of problems for describing, you know, how it could be that you don't see the same constellations in Argentina as you do in Canada on a flat earth model how it could be that there are eclipses, how, you know, how all all of the other things that astronomers, conventional astronomers, real astronomers have have explained, they think that they have a description for. And they're quite busy because, you know, how would you, you know, explain something like phases of the moon or eclipses, etc. But they think that they have an answer. And I have to say this, if that's the the way that you're interacting with them, you're going to lose every time because they've been preparing for that question and they've got an answer to that question. And it won't be one that will satisfy you, but it won't be one that will push them away from their beliefs either. So I didn't go in there to have a factual debate with them 
because in some cases they really knew quite a lot of physics. It's just that they didn't trust the physicists. Mm. They didn't trust the astronauts. They didn't trust the scientists and the professors. So, you know, they, they would say things like, well, okay, look at the picture of the astronauts on the moon, you know, allegedly on the moon. Why can't I see any stars in the sky? Why is the, why is the sky black? And then, well, that's a good question. Why is the sky black? But there's an answer to it. And it's because there's so much ambient light on the, the surface of the, the moon in the, you know, the daytime when the sun's shining on it, that it, you, you can't see the stars any more than you can see the stars against the blue sky on the earth, which has an atmosphere uh, during the daytime. But they take that as a conspiracy. They take that to say, ah, it must be that uh, that was on some sort of a, a sound stage where, you know, where they did that. And so they'll have, you know, a hundred different uh, facts like that, that, you know, if you and if you knock down one of them, they'll move to another and another, another, uh, you know, kind of what about ism. And uh, so it gets frustrating. So what I tried to do is to prepare something to talk to them about that had nothing to do with um, high school physics or you know to, something to blow them out of the water. I wanted to talk to them about inconsistency. You know, wh why were they willing to trust a piece of evidence that supported their view, but not a piece of evidence that didn't support their view? Um, you know, what, what was the difference? You know, could, could they codify that? And then, as I said, the big question was, what evidence, you know, if I had it in my back pocket, could convince you that you were wrong? That question stopped them dead. I didn't get one good answer to that. Uh, I had a fellow, I took a fellow out to dinner. We had a two-hour dinner. He'd been one of their main speakers who was talking about how to recruit people into Flat Earth. And we had just, you know, a private dinner, not recorded, just the two of us. And he was a sharp guy. I mean, he, he was he was smart. Um, and he but he had an answer for every single thing I threw at him, except when I asked him that question. He's then you could see on his face that he knew that he couldn't answer it. And he tried various ways to answer it, saying, well, I'd have to go up in a rocket. No, wait a minute. The windows might be curved. And then I got him to agree that we could take a flight over Antarctica and see that it was, you know, actually a continent and not a, a mountain range around the, uh, the uh, uh, perimeter of the Earth. And it was curved. Yeah. But he, but he, uh, he ultimately backed out on that for a very interesting reason. I said, um, OK, so I think Antarctica is maybe a couple of thousand miles, maybe just 1,000 miles across, and we'll be able to make it on one tank of gas. We won't have to stop to refuel the jet. But if you're right, then Antarctica is 24,000 miles long, and we'll have to stop to refuel at least once. And he shook my hand on it, and I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to go home and fundraise amongst my friends, and we're going to buy these tickets and you know take this trip. And then he backed out, and he said, I'll never forget this, he said, Maybe no plane ever has to stop to refuel. And it's just a giant conspiracy oh, um, to make us think that planes have to stop to refuel. At which point I said, <laughs> so you think the entire history of air travel since before you and I were born was set up so that today when I'm sitting here trying to convince you to take a plane ride with me and this be our criteria, um, that, you know, that that's what the lie was intended for. And he said, that's right. I guess he never stops at a gas station when he's driving a car. Uh, my guest is Lee McIntyre, whose latest book is How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason, published by MIT Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So it's obvious that they uh, employ circular arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that true for most science deniers, not just the flat earthers? It's a really interesting thing that I I read about. Uh, uh, some cognitive scientists had done this work before, but then I've seen it out in the field myself. Um, all science denial reasoning is the same. And, and you list it off, uh, uh, I think all of it. They cherry pick evidence. They believe in conspiracy theories. They 
rely on fake experts and they denigrate real experts. They engage in illogical reasoning and they think science has to be perfect. They all follow that same blueprint, that same strategy. And by the way, that's how you can figure out how to talk to them. Because if you know that strategy, if you study that strategy, and instead of, you know, when you're talking to a flat earther, instead of saying, you know, but what about the eclipse of the moon? Instead, you, you know, you bring up something about inconsistency or, you know, you said circularity, or you ask them, you know, who would be behind that conspiracy theory and why would anybody, uh, uh, what would they get out of it? And, you know, you, you, you push them on the, the method of reasoning. You, you'll have much better luck. There was actually a study in um, the journal Nature Human Behavior in 2019, which showed that that technique uh, was statistically significant in you know measurement that it worked. It's called technique rebuttal. That's correct. It worked in uh, now it didn't work every time, but that that technique rebuttal is an effective strategy for getting science deniers to change their mind. You say it seemed pretty obvious to you that the people you met at the con conference had all undergone some sort of deep psychological trauma, and as a result, mm. regular logic simply doesn't work. What sort of trauma would lead somebody, despite all the evidence, to maintain that the Earth is flat? This was a surprise to me. I, I did not expect to find this. But, you know, because I'd been there for a whole day, and because I was a little bit of an anomaly, uh, people wanted to talk to me. You know, I, I was respectful, and I listened to them. And then they would... You know, they would ask me what I thought, but they also wanted to tell their story. And in conversation after conversation, I heard them describe uh, health issues, uh, psychological trauma. Something had happened in their life that caused them to doubt, to, to distrust the people around them. You remember the opening of the Matrix. You know, he hasn't taken the red pill yet, but he's got his doubts. That, that's how they think of themselves. You know, they're, they're starting to, to wonder. And it's because they've had that breach of, uh, of trust. And by the time I left, I, I really this I couldn't shake this idea. You know, was this the explanation? And, and I'm not a psychologist, but uh, there are psychologists. Uh, one of the most famous is a Ashley Landrum from Texas Tech, who studies this. Um, and it's a fascinating question to ask, you know, is this, you know, wh what's behind this? I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's, um, I, I'm, I'm not going to denigrate it to, you know, to say that this is something, you know, where, well, they're, they're just crazy or they're, they're mentally ill. I, I don't want to categorize it in that way because I think that it's too common and we're all, to some extent, susceptible to it. Flat Earth is the most extreme example you can think of. But almost everybody has a relative who's an anti-vaxxer or a climate denier. And it's the, as I said, it's the identical form of reasoning. And one reason I went to the Flat Earth Convention was because I wanted to learn. If I could learn how to talk to them, then I could talk to relatives who are anti-vaxxers or climate deniers who are you know, hurting the rest of us. That, those are the conversations I really wanted to have. I was practicing on the flat earthers thinking, you know, okay, if I can handle this, I can you know, handle the other ones. But there's a, a difference between a climate denier who is, for example, in the, uh, the oil or coal industry, for example, mm -hmm. or, a, or earlier the, uh, the people in the cigarette industry saying mm -hmm. tobacco didn't cause cancer. They had economic reasons. Uh, yeah. What reason would a flat earther insist that the earth is flat? It, boy, that, I love that question because it really gets to the heart, I think, of what's going on. Remember how we were talking before about how there are a very small number of people who are creating the disinformation? I think that some people that you want to say are deniers are conscious deniers. That is, they know that climate change is real, but they're just making too much money from fossil fuels and they just you know, can't admit it. But the far, far, far larger group of climate deniers are people who do actually doubt it, who, who are not just cynically 
saying that climate change isn't real because they're lining their pockets the whole time. Despite the what's folks, going on in the world right now? The, yes. They're the people who are looking at the propaganda. Um, and, you know, to talk about other, other types of science denial for a minute, <clears throat> one thing that's going on right now with COVID denial is that a lot of the, uh, and I call it disinformation, not misinformation, disinformation is intentionally created. Um, a lot of the, uh, you know, the birth of some of the uh, disinformation about COVID was created by Russian intelligence. And then it gets pumped out to the millions who don't get anything out of it. Now, why would the Russian government be interested in this? Because it destabilizes American society because they have a competing vaccine. You know, for whatever reason, they enjoy the, the, you know, the propaganda, the psychological warfare of seeing the, the United States uh, in disarray and brought low. But the millions of Americans who believe it, they, they get nothing out of it. They're just susceptible. It's like they've been infected, right? The people who created the disinformation are the ones who are carrying the infection and, the, and everybody else catches it. So I think that most science deniers are actually victims. They're, they're deluded into believing somebody else's lies that that other person is getting something out of it. It's not always economic. Sometimes it's ideological. Sometimes it's political power. But, I mean, we've seen this in its many forms in American government. If you can polarize people around an issue, an empirical issue, it doesn't really matter what. And you can create an army of people who are on your side and think of the world in us versus them, you know, polarization, hatred of people who disagree. Then you've done you've really taken a step toward consolidating your own power. And I think that's what's going on with science denial. We think of science deniers as just, you know, people, why don't they listen to facts? And it's because they're being manipulated by the people who are creating the disinformation. I have uh, interviewed a number of science, uh, of uh, climate scientists who have talked about uh, receiving death threats mm -hmm. uh, and uh, hate mail and all sorts of other things. Yeah. Uh, so it go, this goes beyond just simply saying you're wrong. It, it does. And I, I um, well, I, I understand. <laughs> I get mail, too. Um, it, the, you've got to remember that when you tell somebody they're wrong and they haven't told you what evidence could change their mind, the, it, you're, you're, what you're really doing is threatening their identity. You're not just attacking their belief. You're attacking them as a person. And that's an extremely powerful thing. You know, if a scientist says, well, yes, if I saw, you know, X, Y, Z, then I'd give up my belief and, you know, believe a different theory. That's a very different thing than somebody who is um, thinks that the Institute of Medicine is paying off the CDC to hide the data which would, you know, show if it got out that, you know, the, the uh, MMR vaccine was dangerous. That's a conspiracy theory that some anti-vaxxers believe. Um, and there, um, if you challenge that, they, they don't just think you're wrong. They think you're, you're attacking them. And I mean, because in a way you are, right? This, this belief is part of them. It's not just what they happen to believe. It's who they are, as I said. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. The earth is flat. How about that? I read it on a website. It must be right. Chickens have hair. And the Astros play fair. The president's a good dude. I really like his... Back 
with Lee McIntyre talking about his latest book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. It's published by the MIT Press. Uh, Mr. McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at uh, Boston University and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. He's published books and articles on the philosophy of the social sciences and about attempts to undermine science and the appropriate response to these attempts uh, to scientists. Well, uh, the, how do you approach them? Uh, when, when Gene Simmons, the frontman of KISS, told his fans that they wouldn't be welcome at his band's end-of-the-road tour gigs unless they were vaccinated against COVID-19, do you think that changed anyone's mind, even though he, and, and especially when he joked, I don't care if you think the earth is flat? <laughs> you know, Gene Simmons... Um, he's a very smart guy. He was a uh, he was a high school teacher in New York before he was part of Kiss. I, I mean, he's a, he's an educated uh, person, so I, I'm sure he uh, had a little. Bit, maybe people are surprised by by that because they don't know that uh, about his history. Look, it may have changed people's mind, and he may. And I wish more people did what he did because we the the, the way that science deniers actually change their mind is engagement with people that they trust. And it's very hard to build trust if you don't already have it, though, though you can do it. And I mean, you can erode trust by insulting somebody. Um, and you can build trust by being patient and respectful and calm and listening to them. But even better is if the person already trusts you. And you know, I, I was I was mesmerized by uh, uh, something, a, a story that I saw on uh, CNN uh, a couple months back of a Republican pollster named Frank Luntz, um, who had uh, 19 or 20 uh, people who were suspicious of the COVID vaccine. And he was trying to find a message that would work with them. And they said, you know, they didn't want the messages from the politicians or from the celebrities. You know, Gene Simmons maybe falls into that category. Um, the thing that convinced them, I think, though the, the story didn't say much about it, was that he was listening to them. He was engaging with them. He was, you know, trying to he was treating them respectfully. And then once they felt um, listened to, there was a, 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 a scientist who and I, I've got to look at the, the, the actual footage of, of what he did, if it exists, because he was very humble and very gentle and said, you know, well, look, science doesn't know everything. You know, here's what we don't know. But that gave him great credibility when he went, then went through and said, here's what we do know. And all 19 of the people in the focus group reported at the end of it that they were more likely to take their COVID vaccine. People, when they're treated right, it doesn't always work. But you can create the conditions under which they might change their mind. I, I learned that from the flat earther guy that I took out to dinner. His main piece of advice was you're never going to change anybody's mind on the spot. But what you do in your encounter with them is be patient, be kind and plant the seed and then get them to go home and watch a flat earth video on YouTube. And then their algorithm algorithm is forever changed and they'll see one after the other and maybe we'll convert them. But it's his argument that, that, that jet planes could fly without fuel is pretty crazy. Um, you argue uh, that there's no point of shouting at them because yeah. one of their main counter tactics is to get you to lose your cool and in so yeah. doing undermine your credibility. That's right. That's right. You, you, you can't if you go in there with the idea that you're going to have an argument, it won't work. And you may think it's going to make you feel better, but it really won't. And, and then it just further polarizes people. You know, uh, they, they always say that we shouldn't talk about religion and politics over the dinner table. I think that's the perfect place to talk about things where we disagree. Uh, you know, to, family members can convince other family members to get their uh, COVID vaccines. I think that is, uh, that is how it's going to be done. Uh, I'm now reading stories of people in red state America sometimes putting on a disguise and going and getting their COVID vaccine mm -hmm. because it, the peer pressure is so powerful 
they, you know, people, we don't get our COVID vaccines, but, you know, they, they go out and do it. So, you know, they're revealing through their behavior that they've changed their beliefs, but they're not willing to admit it yet. Uh, denial is a spectrum. You know, you, you can find people, you know, the hardest of the hardcore who are creating the propaganda and you, who you're never going to convince from people who are just confused and they're not. Uh, they, they're distrustful and and that's manufactured for them i've i've actually had some some pretty good conversations with people uh that i thought wow you know there, there's no way that i would ever agree with them but something about face to face if you if you approach people as a human being um it, it you have much better luck you spoke to coal miners in rural pennsylvania Mm-hmm. Was, was, uh, were they climate deniers mainly because they were worried about losing their jobs? They, they schooled me. They were not, the, the ones that I spoke with believed in climate change. They were all older fellas who were either retired or at the, toward the end of their career. I, well, I shouldn't say that. They, they had all been in the coal industry for decades. And they they thought that climate change was real. I had some friends help me organize a um, some friends who were uh, uh, former union organizers in coal country live up there. They run an organization called Hear Yourself Think, where they go to Trump rallies and film, you know, their encounters trying to talk across a political divide. And I said, perfect. You know, would you guys help me set up a, a, a dinner? I'll pay for the dinner if some coal miners will come and talk to me about climate change. And three showed up. And then we had some people from a, 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 an activist group called the Center for Coalfield Justice. And we had a, a journalist or two and just some folks who wanted to sit in. We had a very nice, respectful conversation. Now, maybe that's because we all ended up agreeing that climate change was real. But the perspective that I heard from the miners was fascinating to me, because what I realized is that it's not just some of the damage is done not just by people who don't think that climate change is real. It's people who don't have any choice but to, you know, proceed. Uh, I mean, what were they supposed to do? Quit their job and uh, let their family starve? They, in some sense, were victims as well. And it sort of made me mad because the other part of the research for that section of the book, I, w- I went out to the Maldives, which is the island nation that's the most threatened from climate change. And spoke with some fishermen who um, were also victims. And I wish I could have gotten the coal miners and the Maldivian fishermen together because I think they were ultimately all on the same side, even though the coal miners were engaged in work that had a direct negative effect on the fishermen. Well, you said you invited some scientists to come along with you to talk to the, the miners, but many scientists you report that you've invited to join you in discussions about science and I'll have turned down your invitations. Right. Why? I, I had a philosopher friend named Andy Norman, uh, who's got a book out called Mental Immunity. He came. He, you know, another philosopher. He, he was brave. Couldn't get any scientists to come with me. Um. I think that scientists sometimes believe that they could not be effective or that it's just not worth it, that they might cause more harm than good. And it's not true because, you know, we talked about technique rebuttal. There's also something called content rebuttal. They're the experts. And also, I think, often very warm and trustworthy people. And if if deniers got to know scientists, I think they would give up their denialist beliefs uh, uh, at, at a, a more rapid clip than they are. But it's a little intimidating to go out and talk with science deniers face to face. Not everybody has the uh, the desire to do it. After I got back from the Flat Earth Convention, I wrote a, a piece in the American Journal of Physics um, where I invited physicists to come with me next time. And I got a taker. I got a a, a very eminent physicist um, who is now just as fascinated with it as I am. And once COVID is over and they actually have another flat earth convention, uh, we're going to go because he has invented a, um, he created a computer model based completely on flat earth assumptions uh, that uh, demonstrates the contradictions in their beliefs. So he, d- he doesn't do anything other than just let them 
open the door and walk into the bubble and see, and they don't see what they think they should see. That's the way to do it. He's also very humble and, um, you know, in it for the right reasons. You know, he, somebody will say, I get a little impatient sometimes, but, you know, he'll hear something and say, well, now that's interesting. And then he'll chase it down. His name is uh, Bruce Sherwood, and uh, he's, a, he's a terrific physicist. But you say that also some of them are afraid of what's called the backfire effect. What's that? Yes. Uh, so the backfire effect in 2010, uh, Brendan Nine and Jason Riefler wrote a, uh, a scientific paper in which they measured um, what happened if someone had a false belief and then you expose them to uh, true information, you know, correcting information. And I mean, it was incontrovertible. You know, they, they thought that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and then they would show them the speech in which George W. Bush said, no, there weren't. Um, and it didn't change their mind. Now, the backfire effect is when you take it one step further than that. There were a few uh, ultra-partisans for whom not only did they not change their mind, but they doubled down on their original mistake and belief, which is perverse, right? Because it means that the, the disconfirming evidence actually confirmed it for them, which is you know, not supposed to happen. It shouldn't make it stronger. Um, but you know, to skip ahead, uh, years later, that finding, the backfire finding, uh, couldn't be replicated. And the, even the original researchers, uh, Nine and Riefler, you know, understood that and joined the, uh, you know, so scientifically uh, honest, they joined the other researchers uh, in, uh, um, in saying that. And so they said, you know, this was a unicorn. You know, we saw it. it you know, we thought it was real, but it you know, turned out not to be real. And later studies have confirmed that the backfire effect is not real, which means it's very good news because it means that you're, you can't do damage. You, you, even if you went out there and did all the wrong things, you're not going to cause a science denier to hold their beliefs more strongly than they already do. But, you may not convince them, but you're, you're not going to make it worse. But have scientists on the whole pulled back? Wasn't there a march for science in Boston on April 22, 2017, that was attended by 70,000 scientists? We I, haven't I don't seen know how it. many were there. I, I was there. I mean, I look like nothing every, since. I mean, well, they, you know what? They, they were there. And they gave speeches, and it was the very definition of preaching to the choir. Though I'm very glad that I was there and that there was such a show of people. I mean, it was part of other rallies, other marches around the world. I think there were 600 other ones around the world that day, March for Science. Um, so I'm glad that they did it, but how much more effective would it be to take that energy and spend it over a whole year, maybe speaking at PTA meetings or printing up business cards and giving them out to people so that they know a scientist and they can contact them, speaking at their kid's school. Uh, though that's really, you know, I, I can share with you, if you like, some anecdotal accounts. Please. Where, it, you know, in when the, the, there was a measles outbreak a few years back in uh, Vancouver, Washington, and they had a very high anti-vax population in Vancouver, Washington, right across the border from Portland, Oregon, where I sit right now. And uh, you know, Portland also had a high anti-vax population. And the governor of Washington, uh, Jay Inslee, no science denier, um, sent down public health officials to meet with the anti-vaxxers one-on-one uh, -on -one sometimes. And there are stories about this in the Washington Post and elsewhere in which it worked. I mean, when people, there was one woman, I remember, who said, um, you know, that scientist, he sat down with a whiteboard and explained cell interaction for two hours. And he was really warm and trustworthy. And I think he's right. And, and my, my book really is full of examples of this. And, you know, it's, it's anecdotal. They're anecdotal accounts. It's not a, a you know a, a scientific peer-reviewed finding, uh, though. As I said, there are studies that you know peer-reviewed findings which show that you can uh, convince science deniers. But I talk about the anecdotal accounts for for an important reason, which is that 
every single time I've read an account of a hardcore science denier changing their mind, it always happens in the same way. It's always a, a, a personal encounter with someone who was engaging and that they either already trusted or they grew to trust on climate change, on vaccines. That's how it's done. And, and these stories are out there of people changing their mind based on these uh, encounters. There's another famous one in which um, the, the uh, climate denier that Trump appointed to head NASA changed his mind on climate change a, a couple of months into his job. Why? Because all of a sudden he was interacting with scientists every day and grew to trust them. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Lee McIntyre, whose latest book is How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason, published by MIT Press. So um, I, I want to do a little recap there. Uh, there are five factors you say that are uh, most familiar to psychologists involved in organized crime, science denial, cherry picking mm -hmm. evidence, belief in conspiracy theories, reliance on fake experts and the denigration of real experts, logical errors and setting impossible expectations for what science can achieve. You nailed it. Yeah. That that's that, that's uh, the blueprint that that is flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, climate deniers, evolution deniers. They all do the same thing. And, and, I, and I had this fantasy after I'd gone to flat earth that I was going to talk to a climate denier and say, you know, the reasoning strategy you're using is identical to flat earth. You don't believe in flat earth, do you You know, but 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 that's kind of insulting. Right. To, to do that. But it, it, it's nonetheless an attractive point I suppose to make if the person already trusts you because you know I mean perversely one time I thought well if somebody already believes in a conspiracy theory present them with one that's so outlandish that they say well those people are crazy and you could say well but that's how they see you and why is the conspiracy theory that you believe true but this other one that you're rejecting not true you know what's the difference between them i think when you've got a science denier talking about that sort of thing um you're it's fertile ground to plant the seeds of doubt but considering how many people believe in uh, various aspects of qanon should we be surprised mm -hmm. and and how much of this like qanon is political because, for example, many of the governors who are uh, doing things, you know, ignoring, refusing to do, to impose mandates, are are conservatives. You know, I feel so badly because every time I write a book, the problem gets worse, <laughs> and it's your fault. What, it's my fault. What happened? There's a conspiracy for you. What happened is um, science denial was bad and getting worse. And then it morphed into post-truth, reality denial. Because here's, here's the secret. The people who think that the 2020 election was rigged, cherry pick evidence, believe in conspiracy theories, engage in illogical reasoning, rely on fake experts. And, you know, you, here you have to, to change the wording a little bit. They think that the other side has to be perfect. And in People case who, of uh, climate change, uh, yeah. they, they deny its existence because it's something that may happen in the future. They're, they're yeah. ignoring the extreme weather of the present? Yes. And I mean, it's, it's all of a type and it's all getting worse, which is why... You know, QAnon, part of, yes, it's it's part of this. Uh, the the post-truthers, you know, the, the people who um, believe that uh, the, the January 6th insurrection were just, you know, peaceful tourists, that's a form of denial as well. And, and it's it all happens in the same way. And I think it can all be remediated in the same way, except that we're, we've now kind of reached a critical mass of people. And the methodology that I recommend in my book really requires an army of people out there doing this, trying to talk across 
not only the scientific divide now, but the political divide, like my friends up in Pennsylvania. We, we need to get ahead of this, but there are now so many of them. How, how can we do it? And um, my book launches tomorrow. And so, you know, I, I should not say, but I only have part of the answer, hmm. right? Because the thing that keeps me up at night the thing that I think, you know, well, is there another book in this or what should I do? Or, you know, here's the real problem is how do you get people to stop creating and amplifying disinformation? We have when just... you're out there talking to science deniers, you're doing good, but you're not doing the most good because they've st the liars still have a microphone. We have uh, less than two minutes to uh, okay. more for the show, but I was wondering about the scientists who joined the deniers. For example, uh, there were a number of uh, scientists who uh, deny climate change, like Fred Singer and Roy Spencer. It, it, it's, it's mystifying to me. Uh, th there are always gadflies, and, and science needs them. Science needs the people who say, yes, but how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? But what happens sometimes is as I said, a scientist has to be able to say in advance what evidence would convince them if it were true. And there are some scientists that um, defy the consensus so hard and so long that I think they've, uh, they've given that up. Uh, you don't think that they're also bought? Uh, I, I, I don't I don't know those people as individuals. I don't know who funds their work. I think that, look, I, I think that it could be the case. I mean, it, it could be that, um, you know, you if, if you were a scientist, a credentialed scientist who thought that climate change wasn't real, you're going to have uh, speaking opportunities at, you know, the great big conventions. So, the, you know, Flat Earth is not the only place that has a convention. You'd be treated like a rock star. Uh, Andrew Wakefield, the guy who came up with the bogus, uh, discredited, fraudulent link between the MMR vaccine and autism, he's treated like a rock star. He he goes out and uh, and speaks. So you know may, maybe that happens. They, they, look, there aren't very many of them, and you know there there are always dissenters. That doesn't we don't have to have a hundred percent of scientists to agree to understand that something is true. I have the to leave it there. overwhelming consensus. Unfortunately, I have to leave it there. My great thanks to you for being on our show, Lee McIntyre, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason, published by the MIT Press. That's his latest book. He's written a number of books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so My much pleasure. for being on Thank our show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the great questions. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our over 500 past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it right now, please. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content because WBAI is sponsored 100% by listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at large, we need you to go online right now to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one, the New York radio dial, that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air by making that tax-deductible donation. And I'm sure you can understand we need your help now more than ever because of all the difficulties of the last year. My great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support BAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and I hope that you can join us again tomorrow when executive editor of The New Yorker, Dorothy Wickenden, will discuss her book, The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. We'll see you then.